0: Heavenly Father, we had ask for your blessing as we continue in Matthew chapter 1 to discover the truths, the revelation, the special revelation of your son Jesus Christ that has been given to us. We ask that you would help us not to fumble with it, but we would become masters using it and wielding the sword of the word that we'd be able to bring a proper word in a proper season to those who need it. We ask, Lord, that you would help us not to shrink back from that task. You would, I pray also that you would help us to be sociable, that we would be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within to those who would ask, which implies we are discussing with others. So, Father, fill us full of your knowledge. Fill us full of wisdom from your Spirit. And, Lord, may you keep us in the spirit of humility and help us to die to ourselves daily as we seek your word and your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So we left off last week with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I got one verse done, giving you the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. And we went through the time of the patriarchs, the time of the potentates, the time of persecution, which was the first 14. There are three... 14 names, three sets of 14 names in there. It went from Abraham to David in verses 1 through 6. It went from David to the captivity in verses 7 through 11. And it went from the captivity until the advent of Christ, his first advent in verses 12 through 16. And there is information that is there. And I started talking about, I just skimmed across the top. I said, you know, like math, trigonometry and geometry and calculus. We discovered those things. And because God has placed These types of things in his word, like these sections of 14, 14, and 14, you go, what's that all about? And I talked about numerology a little bit, how we have to be really careful not to just dive in and believe everything that everybody says about numerology, and there are certain numbers that mean certain things in there, but a lot of it is a mystery, and we have to dig, and a lot of it we will not discover. It's fun to dig and see these relationships which are there when it comes to even the mathematics and how words are placed and which words God used in the original language. And some of the rabbis talk about not only do the words have meaning, not only do the letters have meaning, but even the spaces between the words and the letters have meaning as well. To give an example of this, if you guys know uh, Chuck Missler. Chuck Missler, he was a Y2K guy. Uh, He decided he was going to move from somewhere, uh, I think up to Big Bear, because the world was going to be destroyed, missiles were going to go off, and we were going to have to be hunkering down somewhere, and just be in a survival mode. Of course, none of that came to fruition, and so he was a little bit discredited discredited on his uh, view of that, but he is still a fascinating Bible teacher when it comes to the text itself. He, He used to go in and save Fortune 500 companies, a really smart guy. Well, he delivered this study once, and it had to do with this idea of numbers and letters inside the Scripture. And if you take the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Moses wrote, and he says, if you take Genesis, and you start with Genesis, and he said, there's a letter in there, and I'm I'm not going to give you all the details of it, but he said, there's a letter in there, it's equivalent to our T., And he goes, you come across the first T in the book of Genesis as you're reading in the original Hebrew, which goes from right to left. It doesn't go from left to right. It goes from right to left. If you take the first letter that's like our T that is in the Hebrew language and you count 49 letters and you do that, what is it, four four times or five, I'm I'm thinking of it right now. But anyhow, 49 letters, you count count 49 and you get a letter and you count another 49 and you get a letter and you count another 49 and you get a letter. It spells out the word Torah. And you you go, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, you go to Genesis, Exodus. The same thing in Exodus. You get the letter that is equivalent to RT the first time it shows up there, and you count 49. And you count 49. And you count 49, and it spells out the word Torah. Genesis, Exodus, you go to Leviticus, and it doesn't work. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you go to Numbers. Same thing happens in Numbers. You get the first T that is in there, the first equivalent to our T in English. And you count 49, and you count 49, and you count 49, and it spells out Torah with those letters that you count with every 49th letter. And Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, same thing. Now you start going, is there a pattern here? Yeah, there's a pattern. So you count 49, 49, 49, and, and it spells out Torah. So you have the first two books of Moses, spell out Torah, and you get the last two books of Moses, spell out Torah. The only thing with the last two books, the word is reversed. So if you have Torah from Genesis, Exodus, it's spelled properly, like we would read it. But in from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Numbers and Deuteronomy, it spells the word backward. It's not the T, it's the end of the I think it's an H, something like that. Or an O, they say, is the letter. But you can't backwards. And so you go back to Leviticus and go, what's up with Leviticus? How come that is not like 49, 49, 49? It's because it's 7, 7, 7, 7. Which spells Yahweh. So the first two books of the Bible spell out Torah, which point to the middle book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and you take Numbers and Deuteronomy, it points back to the center book, which points back to Yahweh. The law points back to Yahweh, and these are just some of the numbers. You know, I, I listen and I go, "No way!" And he, he put it up on this little screen and everything, and I, I'm going, "Wow!" It's just fascinating how God put this thing together. And there are all kinds of uh, literary tools that God uses inside of his scriptures like for instance you know what a chiastic structure is now if you've had english you would know what chiastic structure if you get into composition how it's made and it's almost like you write something and you stick a mirror up to it and it reverses and goes back out the other way god has a chiastic structure in several parts in scripture and you would never know it unless you start analyzing what the text says and several times it's it's almost like a butterfly. God starts saying things, and he exits the same way when he's writing something in the form of poetry. And he has things hidden in there. Meanings are hidden in there. And so whether it's mathematics or the placement of words or the spaces between the words or the letters themselves, God's word is fascinating if you get in there. If you never get in there, okay, i got to read Leviticus today. Okay, let's just like pull our own teeth instead, you know, and instead of read Leviticus. And God has so many riches that are in there if we just kind of muddle through it. And by the way, as you're doing this as a disciple, as you're going through his word and you're discovering these truths, these nuggets, 99% of it is perspiration. 1% is inspiration. And you've heard the old adage, you have to move a ton of dirt. To get an ounce of gold, and so you keep you just dig through the scriptures, and pretty soon God just delivers these little nuggets. And so when it comes to even the the genealogy of Christ and how it is set up, you know, there's one example how the <coughs> genealogy is ascending to Christ, and the other one is descending to Christ. And there's reasons for that as well. But I, I'm not going to bore you with all of those details. We're just going to get right back into it. And by the way, Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter, is the glory of kings. And so if if we are of royalty being children of god himself now we may not be kings we are probably princes and princesses and it's to our glory as well to the glory of god as well to search out these things but it takes a lot of effort to do it so i want to encourage you in that now christ was a mystery that was revealed in the new testament the church is a mystery that was revealed in the new testament and these three groups containing two sets of seven you know it was a mystery until He actually appeared on the scene, and they kept track of their genealogy, and we're just going to get right back into it here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse. Now you have a couple of characters in here. First, you have a a prostitute. Who is that that I just read? Do you guys know? Rahab, Rahab was the prostitute and she is in the lineage of Christ. Oh, dark background, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, they're all sinners that he goes through in this genealogy that's here. And also you have somebody who's not a Jew. Ruth the Moabite. She's not a Jew. You know, and so he if somebody was saying, "Are you purebred?" you know, come, well, purebred as far as humanity is concerned but there's people that had a shady past even in the genealogy of Jesus Christ do you you have uncles or cousins or grandpas well we don't talk about him very much you know well in the old testament these people were transformed to be believers in in God and eventually it's Christ as we know but all of us have a shaded background. If you do that uh, 23andMe genealogy thing that I mentioned, I'm sure you're going to find some shady character back in there. You know, if somebody in prison committed four murders or a thief or a, a pirate, you know, somebody like that is going to be in our backgrounds when we go to look at that. But as we go on, we have going from Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. King David was a father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now that's, of course, Bathsheba. And Solomon was not the one conceived because of the adulterous affair. That would have been the older brother of Solomon who died as a result of David hiding these things from God or from the people. And Nathan the prophet showed up and convicted david showed him his guilt and david repented but god still judged him and took the life of the child going on verse seven solomon the father of rehoboam rehoboam the father of abijah abijah the father of asa asa the father of jehoshaphat jehoshaphat the father of jehoram jehoram the father of uzziah uzziah the father of jotham jotham the father of ahaz ahaz the father of hezekiah hezekiah the father of manasseh Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile in Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. Abiud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim. Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud the father of Eliezer. Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. And so this is all prophesied that Jesus would be born, but what we're going to look at as we get in to chapter 1 and hopefully get into chapter 2 here. We're going to look at the genealogy, a little bit about the genealogy, the deity, the delivery, the nativity, and the royalty. I'm going to say those one more time. The genealogy, the deity, the delivery, the nativity, and the royalty. Okay, so the genealogy, as I said, in Matthew, it's a descending genealogy where it begins and then where it ends. And it provides the legal authority for Jesus To sit on the throne of David. Because that's why they were so concerned about the genealogy. That's why they kept track of it. Anybody who would be a priest, they had to know the genealogy. When they came back into the land from Babylon, if somebody who considered themselves a priest, if they weren't able to trace their genealogy, they were disqualified from being in the priest. Even though they might have been, they could not be in the priesthood and serve Inside of the temple. So the genealogy to the Jew was very important, especially when it led up to the Messiah. And in Luke, it's an ascending genealogy. It goes in the opposite direction. And it provides a pure bloodline. One is a legal line, the other one is a hereditary or birthright line that is there. And this idea of a virgin birth, it is essential that it took place because when it comes to the line of Joseph, coming all the way from David, that line was cursed. Jeconiah was cursed in there. And God told him, there will not be a man from your lineage that sits on the throne. And yet, as reckoned through Joseph, Jesus is the legal son, adopted son, or Jesus is a legal adopted son of Joseph. So he qualifies legally to sit on the throne. But Mary also came Through the ranks from King David. So there both are. So by hereditary, uh, by birthright, he comes through Mary having the birthright, but from Joseph he has the legal right, and both were necessary for the Messiah to sit on the throne. This curse was delivered in, let's see, Jeremiah. Now, Jeconiah or Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, you'll hear these names. This guy has about three different names that are listed depending on the version which you read. In Jeremiah 22, verse 24, it says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians, I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land as long as you long to return to it, even though you long to return to it. Verse 28 of that same chapter says... Is this man, Jehoiachin, a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. That is why it was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin. He could not have been coming through the lineage of Joseph, actually of Joseph. And by the way, scripture never calls Joseph the father of Jesus. It never says that because we know who God's father or who Jesus's father is. It is God, the father. And then scripture also says in Jeremiah thirty-three seventeen that David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So it had to come from David, this person who would be the Messiah, the person who would be king, had to come from David. I bet Satan was going, oh, it's not going to happen now, Jehoiachin, we stopped that line, and no, sorry, he got adopted, so he had the legal right as well as the birthright coming from both Joseph and Mary. It's quite an interesting thing that is there. Now going on in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And this being espoused, it's pledged, it's like a written contract of marriage that has been drawn up between Joseph, or his parents, and Mary, And her parents. It's like an arranged marriage. It could have happened when they were still both very young. And as I mentioned before, uh, some believe, especially the Catholic Church, they believe that Joseph was an elderly man. That he had more children before he married Mary. But that would ruin the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn. And so there would have been an inheritance that would have not gone to Jesus, but would have gone to another. And this idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she only had Jesus, and that was it, and the rest of the children were Joseph's children. That is not true. I was at a memorial recently at a Catholic church, and I looked at the nativity that was still up there. And you look at Joseph, and he's... 60 or more you could tell you know he was balding all the way on top and he had long white hair and mary's this little young virgin that's just right there and and it's an improper depiction of what it was probably actually like but to fit the theology to keep mary a perpetual virgin that's how they have to set up the nativity so if you get a nativity and you go well where's joseph it's that old guy if you get that type of nativity a catholic nativity that is there and we're going to talk about the nativity here in a minute so they were both pledged to be married to each other and Mary goes to Joseph and says Joseph yes Mary I'm pregnant Why, <gasps> what I'm pregnant and she goes but really I didn't sleep with anybody <gasps> uh-huh yeah imagine one of your daughters coming up to you <laughs> I'm pregnant but I didn't sleep with anybody uh-huh Immaculate conception, really. It it really took place that way. Now, it really didn't take place that way uh, for anybody else except for Mary. And Joseph, you know, he was a righteous man. He didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. And it says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So if he would have exposed her, her penalty would have been stoning. They would have killed her. But he didn't want to do that. And it was only the intervention of God in a dream to Joseph that stopped this from happening. He was starting to plan, okay, how can I get rid of this woman? You know, she's been unfaithful to me. And she wasn't. And God revealed to him what he should do. Don't be afraid to take her home to be your wife. And, you know, that's all we would need. Just... God gave me a dream to let me know what to do. And God did this for Joseph. Why? Because he wanted Jesus to be raised in this nuclear family with a father and mother and the brothers and the sisters. Yeah, and we'll read about that in a second. But Jesus had a big family. And he was the oldest in the family. He had at least six siblings. At least six, according to Scripture. And so when you'd sit down, uh, I, I think uh, Eric I think he's right there, isn't he? Is no, that's seven. He, no, he needs to catch up. Eric needs to catch up with that. <clears throat> but this idea, he had a big family that was there. We're going to go on for a minute here in verse 20. But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is in is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be a child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Of course, this is out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, a prophecy. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. See, that kind of gets rid of the idea of her being a perpetual virgin. Just the text there. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So Jesus himself, he was certainly human. He was born of a woman. As we are all born into this life, man is not separate from woman and woman is not separate from man. But the thing that was unique about Jesus is his father was God which made him both God and man. Now, every time I come across this, I give you guys the deity verses, and I want to give you that. I, I didn't really come to grips with the idea that Jesus was God in human form until a couple of years later. You know, I had heard it, but I, I really, I hadn't grasped it. Like I, it, normally when people come to God, when they come to Christ and they get saved, all you know is, I want to go to heaven, and I don't want to go to hell. And however I have to do that, you just tell me how to do that, and I'll take care of that. I'll I'll do that. And that's what I did. Okay, I want to go to heaven. I love prophecy. I want to see Jesus come, but I don't understand the whole Trinity and the Sonship thing and the Holy Spirit. I didn't get that until later. And then I started getting questions, or I'd start asking questions about The deity of Christ is he really God is he really not God then Mike McIntosh as I was being discipled under his ministry he would start saying that Jesus is God in human form and I go what say that again you know and I would take down the notes and I'd get the references and I would write them down and so I want to just make sure we do the same thing here now Jesus is name and I'll, I'll give you these deity verses here in a second his name in the Greek is Jesus Jesus' name in Spanish is Jesus. If you didn't know that, if you were to go years ago uh, down to Mexico and open up a, a phone book, you would see a lot of Jesuses that would be down there. But in the Hebrew, his name would be Joshua. So that's short or that is long for the name that we know today as Josh. We call people Josh. Well, that's the name of Jesus or Yeshua or Jehoshua would be the Hebrew name. They all refer to the same thing. So Joshua in the Old Testament had the same name as Jesus in the New Testament. If you go over to Israel today, you want to be careful if you're speaking. Normally you show up to these sites, and as you're at the sites, you start teaching. And the tour guides will tell you, please don't use Jesus' Greek name. Use his Hebrew name. Because then it doesn't bring an offense to the Hebrews. Because Jesus is an offense to those who are Jews over in the land. So when you're talking about Yeshua, and that's how you pronounce it, you're talking about Yeshua HaMashiach, which is Jesus the Messiah, they'll come in and they'll go, what did he just say? Messiah? I want to listen to that. And I remember teaching over there a couple of times where it it was on a weekend weekend it was on the, I think it was on the Saturday, their Sabbath. And they would go to these sites and they would just sit there and they would relax. And we'd show up in the bus and we'd park ourselves there. And I started talking about Yeshua HaMashiach. And they, they, would, they came and sat behind me. I was talking to the group there. And so they'd sit behind me and there was probably 20 or 30 people that came over. And they wanted to hear what was going on on that particular site. And they were not offended at all because... I was not using the name Jesus, I was using his Hebrew name there. And so if you ever go there, you just say Joshua or Yeshua and they will understand what you're talking about there. Now, as far as the deity of Christ, and you probably want to write these down in the front of your Bible in case you ever run across uh, those who don't believe that Jesus is God in human form. Uh, namely those would be the Jehovah Witnesses but there are other people that don't believe Jesus came in the flesh this is one of the heresies from the first century they didn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh and that he was God in the flesh and the Gnostics felt that he was just simply an illusion Uh, to all of us he was not really God in human form because anything material is evil therefore Jesus could not be something which was evil in the material realm and so they would say no he's only God and he's not man but he's both man and he is God Paul called him God Paul called Jesus God and he's talking about in Romans chapter 9 verse 5 the benefit of being a Jew. Because the Jews are saying, you know, what benefit is it to have had the law and followed all of that and now Jesus comes along and you don't have to follow any of it. And Paul says, well, from theirs are the patriarchs from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised, amen. And it actually says it there. He is God over all, referring to Jesus Christ. And that's the benefit of being a Jew, that you brought in the line of the Messiah or had the line that led to the messiah also thomas called him god and for the jehovah witness friends that may come to your door uh, this particular verse is not changed it is john 20 28 in their new world translation they have changed the deity verses and the worship of jesus they they change the word worship to obeisance which is just showing a form of respect but this particular verse has not changed. John twenty twenty eight. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. A good question to ask the person who is a Jehovah Witness that comes to your door, say, could you read me, please, John chapter 20, verse 28. And as they read it, then you, and you say, I'm going to have a question after you read it. And they'll say, okay. So they pull out their New World Translation if they have it. If they don't have it, you should have ordered one already from the Jehovah Witness organization in New York. and They'll send you one for free. They'll ask for a donation, but don't send them any money. They'll send you one, and when they send you one, they'll send somebody to your house. So you're already set up, so you just open this up, and you say, oh, you don't have yours? I have mine, and you open it up, and you read it. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and you ask him one question. Did Thomas call Jesus God? And and sometimes the reaction is, no, he wasn't doing that, and other times it's the stark awareness like... I'm not going to say yeah, but it's yeah, you know, and they get kind of shocked and then they start backing away a little bit, like get behind me, Satan, you know, whatever the case might be. And you give them the truth. It's the word of God is the sword and that is what does the surgery and that is what kills the soul, so to speak, and brings life to the individual. So that's one that hasn't changed in their New World Translation. Then there's John the Apostle who called Jesus God in First John chapter 5, verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And it says specifically that He is God. And I've had twice in my life where two people have come up to me, or we've been in a discussion. One was an employee that I had before, and the other one is Omar. You know, I, I still talk to Omar. I'll probably go see him today. <clears throat> but Omar just recently asked me, he goes, did Jesus ever say that he was God? And I said, yes, he did. But you have to explain how he did that. Jesus, you know, uh, he was the humblest of all men. And if you showed up and said, I am God. If you said that, that's not being very humble, is it? But you had to understand it in the mind of the Jew. If you showed up and you said, I am that I am. To the Jew, they'd be ripping out their hair, and they'd be ripping their clothes off and throwing ash in the air and landing on their head, because they know that that statement, when you say something like that, you are saying you are God, because that's who the God of the Old Testament was in the burning bush. When Moses said... Who shall I say sent me? What is your name? And he goes, I am that I am. So if you showed up to the Jew and you said, I am that I am, they would know exactly what you were saying. And in the Gospel of John, the, Jesus turned to the Jews, the Pharisees, and he, they were going to stone him. And he says, for which of these works that I have done, miracles, are you going to stone me? And they said, not for any of the miracles, but because you, a mere man, claimed to be God, they understood that he's claiming to be God. Now you might say you don't walk in and say you're God, but he actually did that. He walked in and said, I am that I am. It just it blew their minds so much that they could not handle it, and they wanted to kill him. They did not examine the works he was doing or the scriptures. They were into their own religion and what they were going to do and what they thought brought righteousness. Also, the Father called of God. If you recall, there's one place in Scripture, we were just in this book not too long ago, in the book of Hebrews. God the Father, he makes this entire dissertation in there how Jesus, his son, is not an angel, and that's who the Jehovah Witnesses believe he is. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flame of fire, but, about the son, and see he 's making a distinction he 's contrasting his son with the angels, your throne, O oh God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the sceptre of your kingdom. So God the Father calls Jesus God in Hebrews chapter one, verses seven and eight, in Titus chapter two thirteen, he is called our great God while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I love the King James. But in the King James, this is a little less Trinitarian friendly because it says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It makes it sound like there are two. It's like God's going to show up and Jesus Christ. But in the NIV, I think it's a little more Trinitarian friendly in this particular passage. And it's also implied In Scripture in numerous places that Jesus is in fact God in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 21 it reads declare what is to be presented let them take counsel together who foretold this long ago who declared it from the distant past was it not I the Lord and there is no God apart from me a righteous God and a Savior there is none but me how many Saviors are there there's one Titus one four to Titus, my true son in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, you know, you look at the rock. Who's the rock? God is the rock. Well, Jesus is also the rock. You know, so you, you use these peripheral examples or explanations of who God is, these metaphors, and you can easily get to the point that Jesus is, in fact, God in human form. And also, Revelation chapter 22 and verses 12 and 16, he says, I am the beginning and the end, Alpha and the Omega. And he says that in the book of Isaiah as well. And when you read it in Revelation, you go, oh, well, that's God. But later on in verse 16, he names who he is, which is I, Jesus. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Then a few verses down, he says, I, Jesus. So he is explaining who he is, God in human form. So, I, you know, there's other verses, and, and the one that I uh, had alluded to here was John eight fifty eight. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, for us, that seems like disjointed English, but for the Jew, if you if you said before Abraham was born, you didn't say I was. He said I am. And that just sent them over the edge. And they, of course, plotted how to kill him after that. Now, Jesus was raised in a large family. I want to make sure you have these scriptures. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 48, it says, He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And, of course, that's that's a allegory he's referring to anybody who would be his brother sister mother that type of thing or those who are going to follow him and be his disciple but and that's an allusion to his family his spiritual family but his physical family is matthew chapter 13 beginning in verse 54 and of course this is the time that they thought jesus was crazy he had, you know, he was a uh, taco short of a combo plate. He was just, he was not falling in line with who he is supposed to be. He was kind of on the outskirts. It says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this, m- or excuse me, isn't his mother Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. So we have four brothers there. And it doesn't say sister. It says sisters. Now if you knew the character of God. And Mary had Jesus. And it was a blessing to have a lot of children. It was probably a lot more than six siblings. She probably... Popped out a child every year. I mean, she was just going along. It was probably a huge family, and they were blessed, you know. As a family, it was probably just riotous, you know, taking them to soccer practice and going over to carpentry class and all of those things that they probably had to do from day to day. Mary was probably just worn out, you know, just holding her back like this as she's walking around pregnant, and there's four of them around her, you know, just hanging on. And Jesus is going, "Mommy, I'm hungry," you know, something like that. You can just imagine and we we put we put the life of jesus in this realm of the movies you know jesus is a child and he's holy and walking around and looking at people and healing birds according to tradition you know stuff like that he was a kid you know if he had Baseball, he would have played baseball. If he had stickball, he would have played stickball. He probably got out there with a wooden dowel and tried to hammer it in, and you know all of these things that he did. He was a normal child growing up, and he cried, you know, and he probably stubbed his toe, and you know, when he was hungry and he needed to be changed, and all of those things. And this is God of the universe becomes a filthy, dirty human. It's who we are, but of course, he didn't have our nature. And so we want to keep this in perspective, what Jesus was doing here, who he was, and how he grew up. You examine any family in Lakeside or elsewhere, and you just look at them, everybody has the same problems, the same difficulties, there's nothing new under the sun, and Jesus would have been in a family just like that. His brothers and sisters would have been arguing, now people say, well, did Jesus argue well, it says in Philippians 2.14 you're to do everything without arguing or complaining. There was a time before he knew right and wrong. And we were all guiltless at that point. We were all innocent. So did, did Mary come up to him and say, no, Jesus. And he'd look at her. And he'd do it anyhow. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's the case. I don't want to impute something to Jesus that wasn't there. But I do know He had a normal life. And when he learned right from wrong, he never did wrong from that point. So going on here. He had a large family. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we're in the next chapter. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So before we get into the wise men and the nativity, I do want to talk about the delivery, the virgin birth. Now we've been through the genealogy, we've been through the deity, now we're going to the delivery. Uh, and this is the verse that I uh, quoted earlier, Matthew, or, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So this is hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born. Now there's this phrase. I'm going to give it a shot here. Apomictotic parthenogenesis. There, I got it out. And you go, "What? What is that?" Apomictotic parthenogenesis. That means you don't have to have a partner to get pregnant. Now, has there ever been in all of history a human being, a woman, that has ever gotten pregnant without a man? Well, there's one case, and it's Mary. But is there ever a case in all of history where the animals don't need a partner in order to get pregnant? Yes, there is. One is a crayfish. I bet you didn't know that. If there's no male crayfish around... The crayfish, crawdad, Louisiana, you know, bust them open, you suck them down, and they're all female. They give birth, and they're all female. If there's no males around, they just start pumping out eggs. And those eggs, they come to full fruition, and they're all female. Well, what else out there? The Komodo dragon. The Komodo dragon doesn't, you know, those mean old things that bite the, the water buffalo or whoever they are out there, and then they just follow them around for a couple of days until they get sick and die from the poison. They don't need a male around either. And the females will only produce males. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it, that they would do that? Well, also, there is the whip tail lizard. The whiptail lizard doesn't need a partner around or the hammerhead shark. I didn't know that about hammerhead sharks, that they didn't need a male hammerhead to come around and have the female hammerheads give birth. They can just spontaneously generate. Well, what about the parasitic wasp? A parasitic wasp can do the same thing too. And, and so there are creatures, and if you get into the microbial stage of things that are really small, they just kind of divide themselves and they keep on going. But they are asexual in nature. It has never before happened in history, even though this is prevalent in several sectors of the animal kingdom. This does take place. But the virgin birth, as I explained before, was very necessary because of the cursed line of Joseph, But yet, she needed to have somebody from the line of David to have the legal right. But his line was forever cursed, coming through Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. Uh, And so, we just want to recognize this. Now, the nativity, going on to that, you know where the nativity came is in the 13th century. It was not around during the birth of the church or when the Catholic church came about. It was St. Francis Assisi. And he wanted to kind of protest against the commercialism which is out there of just getting the gifts and giving them back and forth to one another. So he set up this nativity and he put the shepherds in there and he put the magi and he had Mary and Joseph in there and the animals all spread around, little star in there and maybe a little angel, you know, that's up on the side. He's the one that did that and brought it in the 13th century. 1200 would have been the year, 1223. And so it is a Johnny-come-lately thing. And, of course, we know all of those things did not happen at the same time with the Magi coming in. And, of course, we know that Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem, and that was a prophecy as well as far as the nativity, the actual nativity is concerned. If you go to Bethlehem, they will take you to the exact spot, or so they say, that Jesus was born. And it's, the, it's this church of the nativity And you walk in and there's these huge columns. It looks like it's about four stories tall on the inside. And each one of these columns has been painted. They've been there for hundreds of years. And then there's this little cave that you have to walk down into. And I think it's controlled by the Eastern Orthodox Church or they, they switch it out. And you walk down there and you'll see two nuns just sitting there. Right in front of this little hole. And they have this hole which has like a silver starburst around it with a marble floor, and there's candles lit all around it. They say, yep, that's the spot right there. And, of course, they charge you to get in to this church. They have to make some money off of this. And somebody is always sitting at the church of the nativity where Jesus was born. Is it the actual spot? Probably not. It's not, but they want to make you think that it is the spot that Jesus was born. And, of course, he was born in probably a cave, probably this manger was a trough for an animal that was hewn out of stone. It probably wasn't a little wooden thing that was there. But he was certainly born there, and the Magi didn't show up until a couple of years later. And they were born in the city, or he was born in the city of Bethlehem. It is the city of Ruth and Boaz. Of course, they were the parents of Jesse, who gave birth to King David, from which the line of the Messiah is set. And this Bethlehem, city of Bethlehem, it's five to six miles south of Jerusalem, the city there. And, of course, I just told you about the (coughs) Church of the Nativity that is there, and it's kind of a money-making enterprise because busloads of people will go in there. I actually have a picture of it somewhere. But it was prophesied that Jesus would be born. In Bethlehem, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And these magi were men of the east, probably from Persia or modern-day Iran or Iraq. And they were educated in philosophy and medicine and history and agriculture and natural sciences. They're possibly of a priestly, uh, they had a priestly function and political Class was designated to them as citizens. And this goes back probably all the way to Daniel, as I have talked about before. Now, this this group of magi who showed up, we don't know how many, and we don't know how many of them there were and how many gifts they brought. But we do know that they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And by tradition, their names are Caspar, Melchior, and Balthasar. But we don't know that. And there was one guy uh, who said he actually had the skulls of these three individuals. And it's just kind of morbid. But, you know, they did things like that back then. They would save the bones of some of these guys. And they could have been magicians, magi. That's kind of where we get the magician uh, name from. Or could have been magistrates. Uh, And as I said, the area of Persia or Iran or Mesopotamia, Babylonia, Medo-Persia, they came up through that line, especially if they're coming from Daniel in the Old Testament. But it is also thought that they were able, uh, they had this ability to interpret dreams. Now oh, go figure that. Daniel, he interpreted dreams. And these guys came from uh, what he had set up. Daniel probably had set up during this time. <clears throat> and they, they are not Jews and they are not Arabs. They were related to Shem. They're a Semitic people and they were monotheistic and and so they knew about this prophecy to show up and see the star uh, that would have been there now I could go on from this point I'm I'm down to verse two but I think I'm just going to hold off and we still have to get to the rest of this with not only the three wise men and the unwise king we're going to talk about Herod and who Herod was boy he was a just a work of art, this guy, this Herod. And we're going to learn about him. And he was the one who had all the children two years old and younger killed. He didn't have a problem with that. And the history of Herod, we'll find out exactly why he didn't have a problem with that. And we're just going to keep on going through this. But this idea that Jesus is God, if we just say, well, that was nice. He's God. He came and said some specific things. He said, if we don't believe in him, if we don't trust in him, if we don't desire to become his disciple, we will have no part in the kingdom of God. And so he encourages us. Be that disciple. And how do you know if you're a disciple? You do what he commands. What does he command? To believe on the one who he has sent. Because of that, if we believe on Christ... The works will flow. If somebody says, I believe in Christ, and there are no works that flow as a result, not because you think you're going to get salvation, but because of the love Christ has put in you, there needs to be a question if you're really even saved. Because James talks about that. You believe good. Even the demons believe that there is one God. Show me your works by... I'm going to show you my works by what I do. And faith and works work together in the life of Abraham. There's going to be a change. And so that's when we're called upon to examine ourselves to see if we're even in the faith. There are going to be many who say, Jesus is Lord, that will not make it into the kingdom of God. And so we simply... Confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Let the Holy Spirit work in us and work out our salvation with fear and trembling and he will produce in us salvation. And it will be evident to all who are around. The one question you would want to ask somebody who knows you is, do you think I'm a Christian? And if we examine it by that standard... Do we fall short? Or do we fall in line with what Jesus said? That's what we walk away with today. Are we truly believers? Believing in one Jesus Christ. Who claimed to be God. Said you can't get to heaven any other way. And there will be fruit as a result. If there is no fruit. May we fear and tremble ourselves right into the kingdom. Father we had asked for your blessing on this word. We pray that you would just enlighten us even more. That you would make these mysteries come alive the things that were hidden from an old from an old in the Old Testament and they had been revealed to us in the New Testament and how our brothers and sisters from 2,000 years ago have kept this word alive you have used them Lord to do it we pray that we had not considered a light thing that we'd maintain a respect for the word and for you and Lord that we would do your will accordingly to the will of your spirit that works in us in jesus name and the church said amen